What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to episode 595 with my guest, Maylee Chapin. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. A place for honesty about all the bullshit rattling around in our brains. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I am not a therapist. I am a jackass that used to tour around the country and tell dick jokes and uh, cook chicken uh, on basic cable while we showed you movies. Um, I got an email from a listener who had some concerns about a recent guest uh, that we we had. And uh, they write, I'm writing with concerns that this episode had some red flags of junk health science. Uh, a chiropractor, chiropractor making medical or scientific claims based on their own informal, quote, research, claims that they know information that the current medical or scientific field does not or that is not widely known by others. Um, claims they utilize known technology in ways that were previously untapped by the current medical or scientific field, using their own personal anecdotal evidence, experiences, evidence to prescribe generalized health protocols for everyone else, and claiming eating organic foods will heal you, uh, and selling an expensive supplement claiming it will heal you. So... Um, Thank you for uh, chiming in. That was and that was sent to me by um, a listener named KB. And uh, you know, if, if one of the things when I set out to to um, do this podcast was to not be people's solution or people's answer, but for it to be a community of open discussions and uh, places where people could share their stories. So there you have that. I was so fucking angry today. And this is where being in a support group really, really helps. I've, I've Without going into too much detail, a lot of political anger. Um, as you know, there there's the, the hearings on the January 6th things, and they're being carried live by all networks except one. And I had so much anger at that one network because in my mind, it's adding, to, it's adding to the divisiveness. It's hiding the truth. It's propagating what will, in my mind, certainly be a civil war. I'll be at the back of the bread line. I'll be dying of thirst. I'll have to drink out of a puddle, and then I'll be, you know, have uncontrollable diarrhea in line for uh, the bread 
And when I get there, it'll just be a crust and it'll be mold, you know, on and on and on and on and on. And it is not for a recovering addict or alcoholic. Resentment is not something that is safe to hold on to. And so I called somebody from my support group and I got his voicemail and I just, uh, just kind of laid it out on there because I needed it to get off my chest, not at him, just in general. I just said, hey, man, here's what's going on. I got this fucking resentment. And uh, and I felt better afterwards because one of the, the things that I've learned in the support group is to let go of the things that I can't control. doesn't mean I can't care about them. doesn't mean that I shouldn't fight in the ways that I can fight. But, um, you know, go into that dark place in my head of thinking that I know how everything is supposed to be and if people don't act the way I want them to, then, you know, I wish harm on them or, you know, etc. And I felt better after I did that. And that is a nice feeling because 99% of the time, I'm a really fucking calm person that wishes people well. And since I've gotten sober, resentment is a strange feeling to me, whereas it used to be like water to a fish for me. I was so filled with resentment. I didn't even know I was resentful. But just another of the thousand reasons why I'm such a huge fan of support groups. All right, let's read some surveys. This is from the Voice in Your Head survey filled up by a woman who calls herself doom and gloom on a lovely afternoon. What are some of the things you tell yourself about yourself? That people only enjoy me before they get to know the real me. That I'm fundamentally unlovable and irredeemably flawed. (laughs) That is, is, you just described 90% of our experience as being a human being. I don't know, maybe I'm over estimating that, but maybe 90% of the people that listen to this podcast, you've just described our inner lives. So thank you for that. Uh, this is from the struggle in the sentence survey filled out by uh, a woman who calls herself the hypocritical therapist and uh, about her depression. She writes, what is the point if we all die in the end, but her anxiety, if I don't keep moving, I will start crying and that's not an option about her alcoholism and drug addiction, when your best friend tries to kill you, about her codependency, love me, please love me, I have no value if you don't love me. Oh, this one's so dark, about being a sex crime victim, at least someone thinks I'm pretty. About being an abuser, how could I do that? How did I become a monster at 12? Um, And about uh, impulsive sexual encounters. before I do it, I need this. I need the rush. It isn't that big of a deal. At least I'm not relapsing after the encounter. Showers for two hours trying to get clean. Self-harms because I'm a disgusting slut and deserve to be punished. Snapshot from her life. Was it rape? Was it assault? Am I dramatic? I am the sickest person who exists. I am placing myself into a category I don't belong in. I have to be lying. It wasn't violent. I could have said no. I could have said no. He may have been okay if I had said no. Thank you for sharing that, man. You got a, you got a lot of feels going on there. Thank you. Thank you. This is from the love survey. And this is uh, filled out by 
uh, a person who calls themselves Manda Panda. And they write, I love the feeling of blowing your nose first thing in the morning and the feeling of the big booger dislodging. It's just a good way to start the day. That's a great one. I think anytime we get rid of something big in our body, whether, whether we're pulling something out of our ear or going to the bathroom, getting something out of our nose, letting an emotion out. Let's add that to the mix. What do you think of that? And speaking of uh, letting emotions out, we are sponsored this week, as always, by BetterHelp.com. Online therapy, uh, the topic for this month at BetterHelp is burnout. And uh, what's, what's burnout mean to you? Working too much? Letting your battery get drained by people? Too much work? Too much of a relationship? What is it? For me... I think it's talking to people. Sometimes I just get burned out talking to people and I just need a break. Most of the time it's energizing, but sometimes sometimes I just I just get an ass full of people. Uh, BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. And you guys get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash mental. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P com slash mental and make sure you include the slash metal so they know you came from the podcast this episode is sponsored by when breath becomes air when breath becomes air by paul kalanathy is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question what makes a life worth living as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis it's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive a must-read for anyone in medicine from a doctor-turned-patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include what makes life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future is no longer a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com breath. And then finally, this is a struggle in a sentence survey filled up by a woman who calls herself, oh, it's her again, gloom and doom on a lovely afternoon, uh, about her sex addiction. She writes, why does the pursuit of a sexual conquest feel so life-affirming, yet afterwards I am repulsed by myself and the other person? Um, about having borderline personality disorder, I can't determine if I am the victim or the monster in this shitty horror movie. And then a snapshot from her life. Ooh, this asshole is always trying to flirt with me. How rude and unprofessional. Me describing to a co-worker someone I had sent nudes to several months ago when I was bored. Your fear of 
Death is your love of life in reverse. I'm a kinky person. I didn't want to be... I'm, I'm ashamed. A sexual being. Deeply ashamed. You are... I want to live fucking depressed. But how? I can't do this anymore. I will be uncomfortable, so you will be comfortable. Is life just a series of perpetual losses? You're not depressed. We're black. There is no real chance for intimacy. We don't do that. Without risking being hurt push it all down you can't go around it ireland like we don't do mental health talk through is the only path no one is ever alone there's somebody else out there don't forget experiencing the same thing as you but the places you feel most broken now you just gotta look for them will one day be your greatest strength and when you find them it's a great feeling and i'm suddenly feeling horrible about (laughs) making that joke but that's how far i will go to get a laugh because i am empty inside you're in the right place. I am here with Maylee Chapin, um, who is a terror attack survivor. I think that's the first time I've said that on the on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, it's not a not a very usual one. I don't know very many others, which is good, I guess. Right? Yeah. We, yeah. We, it's not something I'd wish on anybody. So, before we get to that, um, t- tell me a bit about yourself, where you were raised, kind of you know, your view of the world in yourself before this event. <laughs> I, I know that's a lot. Right. Yeah. I'm like, oh, goodness. How much time do you have? Um, tell me from the moment your your parents met. Tell right. me everything. Okay. So the year what? No, I'm just kidding. Um, I was raised in a small town in Ohio. Um, and my parents are awesome. I think they're really cool. I really look up to them a lot. Your mom Lisa is out in the yard keeping Gracie occupied. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Uh, She has so many talents. Um, But, uh, you know, my mom is from Puerto Rico and my dad is from the tiny town in Ohio where I was raised. What town? uh, Hilliard, Ohio. Not a lot of people know it. Yeah. Um, But it was really interesting to be raised in such a small town, but with like a multicultural family. Um, I definitely didn't know anyone else whose family was from Puerto Rico in that town, but it was fun. And like what that meant to me as a kid was that obviously my mom speaks two languages and, you know, often our television or music or whatever would be in Spanish. Um, But it also meant really fun things like amazing food that my friend's parents didn't make. And, you know, our walls were always like neon green or orange or yellow. I love those things. Um, And then obviously it's become... Uh, you know, part of my identity as I've I've grown up as well. But uh, and are you bilingual? I, yes and no, I would say. So actually, um, we didn't really speak Spanish when I was growing up in the house. My mom was still um, honing her English, I think, and mm-hmm. so used all the opportunities to practice. And my dad doesn't speak Spanish, but as I got older, I really developed an interest in in being able to speak Spanish more. So I can definitely get around. It's it's not perfect, but I can definitely get around in Spanish. But um, my uh, new passion is learning German, and knowing Spanish has helped me like zero percent with that. Oh, it's, so. it's the the oddest language. I, <laughs> I studied it in college. Did you? Yeah, it's so yeah. interesting, and it really does have cognates with English, which I didn't know at first. Um, so it's like I get a little bit of help sometimes. Yeah, but it was it felt 
like a completely different endeavor than trying to learn a romance language. Yeah. So. Have you been to any Germanic countries? Yeah, I lived in Hamburg for six months. I love Germany. Germany. Me too. Yeah, I, really I love Switzerland. Me too. I wanted. I, I want to go to Austria. But Me too. That's on yeah, my bucket list. I've been yeah. to Switzerland and Germany, and uh, the first time I went to Germany and Switzerland, actually, I didn't speak any German. So it's been fun to go back as I've like learned more and more and get around. And I'll never forget, actually, when I was living in Hamburg. Um, I would go to like the locals places, right? I'd go to the coffee shop on the corner. I'd go to the farmer's market on the weekend and people would speak to me in English. And I'm, I was completely confused. I was like, how are they realizing that I am American? Like what is giving me away? Is it my accent? But I wouldn't even get a word out. Like, so I couldn't figure out how they knew. And finally I asked someone at one of the coffee shops and she was laughing. I think she felt kind of impolite saying it. And she was like, um, you're out in public in your workout clothes. <laughs> started laughing she's like only an american would do that oh my god and legit from then on i started wearing jeans and you know like a proper <laughs> sweater when i would leave the house and from then on i was able to practice my german so i still think about that and laugh didn't even occur to me and, and so uh, what was kind of the uh i don't know the uh, the um, emotional temperature in childhood your your view of yourself it sounds like your family life was kind of stable and warm and yeah, I mean, I think, you know, my parents were really young when I was born, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think there's a certain amount of instability that comes with that inherently. Yeah. Uh, and so that that was definitely very real in my house. And there were definitely issues to make ends meet financially. And that causes stress. And, you know, my parents were figuring out themselves and their relationships. Mm -hmm. And and are I, they still together? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if I had a kid when I was 20, I have no idea how I would have oh fared. God. So yeah. <laughs> no judgment, obviously. Um, but, you know, I think that my mom, my mom really is, she is really incredible. She came from nothing and built her business. And she's just one of those people you can't seem to knock down, like no matter how much the world tries. Um, but I think the way that I internalized that when I was young was that like, something like, no struggle that I will ever encounter will be worth or, or I will never be um, I will never have the right to struggle because I will never have struggled the way my mom struggled. And she continues to pick herself back up and dust it off. And, uh, you know, her favorite you, phrase you is believe that's true. I, or that's something you tell yourself. I believed it was true. I got you. As and I was growing up, I, I it was very much something that I believed. I don't think I believe it anymore. Yeah. Um, and can I ask how old you are? Yeah, I'm 29. Okay. 29. Turned 30 this year, so it's time to figure out life, you yeah, know? It's, it's over. It's time. It's all <laughs> exactly. Over. Downhill. Yes. Um, yeah, I think that I think that everybody does that, right? We have this tendency to always draw comparisons between our lives and other people's lives, and particularly people we feel have had it harder than us for mm -hmm. one reason or another. And there's a tendency to look at that person's life and say, well, that invalidates what I feel or what I've struggled with. Um, which honestly is just going to make you spiral worse. <laughs> it's it's one of the cruelest yet most yes. common things yes. we do to ourselves. Yes, and it's a it's a coping mechanism, right? We don't want to struggle. We don't want to feel pain, and so we look at someone else and say, "Well, why should I feel pain? Mm -hmm. Because wouldn't it be nice if I didn't?" Right? But it doesn't mean that that you don't feel that pain. It just means now you also feel guilty about feeling pain. Yeah. So. Yeah, yeah, and it, it doesn't really matter what envelope the the pain arrives in. It, it it's 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 pain. Yeah. It's struggle. Yeah. And uh, you know we we don't compare what mail the neighbors get. Exactly. Uh, and I'm talking literal mail. Yet, yeah. Um, 
for some reason, we, we do that to ourselves. And I think, right, just I always try to talk people into drawing the comparison to physical ailments yeah. because it helps you remove those odd sort of mental coping mechanisms that we have, right? And if you broke your leg skiing and I broke my leg because I tripped walking the dog, mm-hmm. It doesn't mean my leg is less broken than yours. It means you're an idiot. Yeah, exactly. I'm just an idiot. Yeah, the other person's (laughs) full of fun and they have money. (laughs) And I'm boring and lame, but I still have a broken leg. Exactly. But yeah, it's like, so there's no point in comparing because the pain is is real. So it doesn't matter how you got there. It just matters that you are there. And the first step to getting better is probably being able to say, my leg is broken. Right. So what were some of the issues growing up that you dealt with? Yeah. Um, so hmm, how would I answer that as honestly as I possibly can? Um, I would say that I lived in a relatively high conflict house in that, um, my parents are both very loud. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so disagreements were, uh, you know, the whole, the whole neighborhood was going to know if my parents were having a disagreement. Um, so I have a tendency still today to be like, super conflict avoidant, right? I'm, mm. I definitely prefer to be the great compromiser, the people pleaser, keep everything, you know, uh, steady and stable, keep everybody happy. Mm. And then maybe we'll never have a conflict. And wouldn't sure, that be wonderful? If I can just be everything to everybody, exactly. I'll, I'll be okay. How, right. how, how is that too much to take on? <laughs> exactly. How's that going <laughs> to break badly? Yeah, you know, And there's a quote in the intro of your podcast that says, let me be uncomfortable so you can be comfortable. And I think that is very much the role that I took on. Um, but I, I balanced it by being very rebellious, which is interesting, right? So I'd go to school and I'd get perfect grades and perfect homework and I was valedictorian and, you know, I, I made sure everything looked right on paper. And I think that I would see that that still didn't resolve conflict, right? Mm -hmm. It was like, no matter how perfect I was, there was still conflict in my home. And so then I would spin out the other direction and, you know, sneak out or, you know, break laws or drink or whatever, right? And I think those were very much cries for attention. Um, But yeah, I tried them both. Neither one seemed to reduce the conflict in my house. (laughs) So uh, yeah, and, and, you know, to circle back to... um, to how we thought about mental health in my house, I think. Um, I, I, to this day, don't know what my parents have struggled with in their lives. I don't, you know, I, I know some bits and pieces, um, but I know that they've both gone through really tough things, like things that, you know, it's hard for me to understand how you can get through without needing therapy. In mm-hmm. Had I been in their shoes, I would have needed a lot of therapy, I guess is my point. Um and those were not things that were talked about. The the internal struggles were not talked about. And the answer sort of the resounding motto in the house was definitely like, you know, get over it. Like someone has it worse, um, figure it out and, and move forward, move on. And I didn't feel like they didn't care about me. You didn't, mm-hmm. I didn't, I didn't resent that. was their that. coping mechanism. Yeah, exactly. They were in survival modes for so much of their lives. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And I didn't, and I, and I don't resent that to this day. And I think that there are times that it's really come in handy times that life has knocked me down. And I've been like, you know what? I think in this instance, I can pick myself back up and keep going. Um, and I don't think they're mutually exclusive. Right. Exactly. You know, I think you you can yes. have compassion for yourself and pick yourself up and yes. dust yourself off and have a positive <laughs> attitude. But Well, yes. Yeah. Self-compassion is a, a term I have learned in the last five years, definitely. And um, something that's really 
changed my life. Like I remember when my therapist uh, told me to read Kristen Neff's book on self-compassion and uh, I bought a copy and I got like 10 pages in and I was like, dude, come on. This is so fluffy. Like nobody Mm -hmm. needs this. This is nonsense. This doesn't make any sense. You can't be kind to yourself. I literally thought that was like an oxymoron. Like self-compassion is an oxymoron. Um, And now... It is something I literally work on every day. Every day I try to be kinder to myself. And even saying it, it sounds fluffy and I don't care because it works and it makes my life better. <laughs> I still, you know, when I talk about self-love, yep. there's a little tiny eye roll right? inside me yep. that's like, oh yeah, why don't you go hold on to some crystals exactly. and release your buttocks into the earth. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. I feel like it's like a cringe inside, which, you know, maybe when we really peak, when we are crushing self-compassion, there will no longer be any part of us that feels uncomfortable talking about it. Now, what's that? Will you let me know when that day arrives? It's a hypothetical, you know. It's it's, uh, enlightenment, maybe. I don't know. But, yeah. So let's let's talk about uh, the event. Yeah, sure. Yeah. what do you want to know? <laughs> <laughs> Tell me uh, what you remember from yeah. from that day or you know, whatever I, was leading up to it. Yeah, I actually, I know that um, for some for some folks, they don't remember big portions of, of the traumatic events in their lives. But um, I think I could pretty much tell you every minute of those 17 hours. So... Um, I was in Nairobi, Kenya. I was there on a business trip. I was um, doing some research for Google, um, who was my employer at the time. And I was in a very nice five-star hotel where they put me up. And, you know, I had been told that there is a latent but credible threat of terrorism in Kenya. And uh, And this was what year? 2019. Okay. Early 2019. Um and you know, I I knew vaguely of of the mall. I did not know at that time about the attack there on the school. Um, and I I really, even still, I really thought of those kinds of incidents as concentrated in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. And and it's naive even to think like, you know, even nine eleven didn't make terrorism feel real enough in my life, right? That's on U.S. soil. And even still, I think, well, I'm in Nairobi, Kenya. There's no danger to me, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Because we all think we're immortal when we're 26. And uh, and yeah, so I just, I really, I let that roll right off my shoulder. I really underestimated, I think, the potential danger of, of being there. Not that, as I know now, you know, it's not that I could have done anything differently to change it, but um, that's where I, I don't know. I think you could have. To, uh, to stop the terrorists? Yeah, I yeah. do. It's I honestly, do. I think if, if I just you, tried a little harder. <laughs> I think if you had tried harder, and I think deep down if you had been a better person oh, inside. Oh, Yes. Oh, my God. How did you know? This I mean, is the thing. Exactly. Yes, if I had just... Yes. But I wasn't a good person. You know, I wasn't yes. good enough. So. Well, terrible things happen to terrible people. I know. Exactly. So there I was. <laughs> <laughs> there I was in the room. You know what? Actually, this is... I have to say this. This is the thing I love about your platform because... And I was just messaging with someone about this on Instagram. I think that people are really afraid to make jokes to me about yes. the event and about the attack. And there are parts in my book where I'm making these like, you know, whatever. Maybe they're dark jokes, whatever. But it's how I cope. And 
I feel weird that people feel like they can't make jokes to me, right? Yeah. There's never been anything else in my life that people weren't willing to be sarcastic about. But then this, everyone's like, oh, God, I can't bring it up. I definitely can't make a joke if she brings it up, right? And right. it's the moments that someone will make a joke that I just like it's, – it's freeing. It's, it's so, so nice. It's so freeing. Yes. And I, and I think an important thing to remember if you're the friend of that person yeah. is – it's different if that's all you do yes, is joke sure. about it. That's a great If point. you have intimate, vulnerable yes. conversations, you're yes. there for that person, then it's the, the, the joke, obviously. It's, that's a better way to say it. Exactly. Yeah. Because it is because I know and love these people and I know that they love me, that it's fine for them to make these jokes. And I actually like when they do, as we're saying. It is like, yes, it's freeing. And it makes me feel more supported, which maybe they wouldn't have guessed, right? Yes. Yeah, it was a good friend of ours who was like, he was trying to book something, some travel, and there was a problem with the Airbnb. I don't remember what it was. And she just turned from their kitchen and was like, yeah, well, as long as it's not a five-star hotel. (laughs) And it was just like, it was great that she felt comfortable enough to make that joke. And it caught me off guard, and I laughed really hard, and it just made me feel like a real person. Right. You know? It's weird to say, but yeah, totally. I I, uh, did a storytelling show I don't know, maybe 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And it was one of the first times that I was starting to speak publicly about abuse that, uh, uh, sexual abuse that I had experienced as a, as a kid. And my voice was shaking. My knees were shaking. Um, I'm sure you know that feeling when you're sharing something that you're so afraid somebody's going to say, get over it. You baby, you're an exaggerator. (laughs) I really do. You're you're making me anxious right now to sing. And I'm like, yep, I know that. You're filled with doubt. You're You're milking You're feeling shame. You're questioning whether you should have even done it. And I sit back down and a comedian friend of mine, Laura House, was sitting right next to me. And she looks at me and she leans in and she goes, gross. <laughs> and I laughed so hard. Right? So hard. And it's this, it's this sense that if it was anything else in your life, she right. would have made that joke. Right. And so the fact that she can still make it, because this right. is just a valid, as valid, a part of your life. Right. And you're choosing to talk about it. So it's right. okay. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. It's okay to joke about it. Yeah. Uh, so yes. go ahead. Sorry about so that. So anyway, back to the serious stuff. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I was in my hotel room um, in Nairobi. I was on the third floor and I was really jet lagged. So it was like 3 p.m. And I was going to take a nap and meet back up with um, – I was the only person from Google who was there. But I there were some external partners who were part of the research mm-hmm. team. So I was going to meet back up with them for dinner. And uh, – it, it literally, I don't know if you ever feel like this about your life, but there are these moments that look more like a movie scene, even in my head, than, yeah, yeah. than like my life. It feels like that when I see it today. Um, it literally is like I crawl into the bed and I, you know, get comfortable, sort of tuck myself in. And as my head hits the pillow, I, I, I know now that what happened was an explosion went off. But the feeling then was that, I don't know, that the building was coming down. Like, it was so severe, and I had never felt anything like that, right? Most of us will never be that close to such a significant blast. Um, and so it was like my my ears were ringing. I couldn't hear. The bed was shaking. My body was shaking. And I think the first instinct was like, I think I think the building's coming down. You know, I better mm-hmm. like cover my my body, my head, um, and then you know the walls don't collapse, and I 
I, my, my brain is reeling, trying so hard to come up with a reason that that possibly could have happened. That doesn't mean that I'm in mortal danger, right? Um, and so I'm like, uh, could it have been anything else? You know, I'm looking around for like a sign or, you know, someone later was like, we thought maybe it was a gas line that had exploded, you know, some explanation like that. So I am running to my window, which looks down onto the courtyard of the hotel and there's a restaurant and some other buildings. Um, and I, my hands are shaking so much. I actually struggle to open the curtains and I finally wrench them apart. And I, it's a, it's a very, um, <laughs> disheartening is not a strong enough word. Uh, it's a very traumatic scene, I think is the right word. Um, there's smoke rolling through the courtyard. So like clearly there has just been a blast and, um, that was when I realized that it was not just a bomb, but a suicide bomber because um, the the pieces of his body were, were visible there in the courtyard. Oh, my God. Yeah. And, you know, as much as that looks like a movie in my head, that, that 26-year-old girl lying down to take a nap in her room, and it's almost like out of body when I think about that mm. memory, um, that moment as it was happening looked like a movie to me because truly, truly – you know, whenever you see something, your brain is trying to to process it, to look for anything similar you've ever experienced. To, to categorize exactly, it. Exactly. Find a heuristic to understand what's happening. Find a category. And what it looked like to me was a movie scene because that right. was the closest I had ever come to that kind of right. devastation. I could have only seen it on a movie screen. And, you know, it was like I remember thinking the smoke looked like someone had a smoke machine, like a right. fog machine, Right. Um, so it was, yeah, my brain couldn't find a place in, in this reality for that scene. And, and something that, that I want to say, even if you had never looked out the window yeah. and seen that, Very even important. if it had only been a gas explosion, sure. not knowing yeah. If you're in mortal danger is enough for PTSD. You know, so often we look back when somebody shares a story and you're like, but you didn't get raped, but you didn't get mugged. But the fact that you thought or didn't know if it was going to happen, that's the the bomb inside of us. Exactly. That we're dealing with. It's it's it leaves a tattoo on your soul. Tattoo is exactly right. It was funny. Initially, you had said something about your conception of self before and after the event. And I sighed because everything about my conception of myself, the world, everything changed in this experience. And as you're saying, right, it didn't, I, it, you know, as the story unfolds, you're, you'll hear I was never like held by the terrorists, you know, and I didn't have a gun pointed at me directly um, so even I struggled with that in the aftermath, right? I was like, well, yes, it was a suicide bomb. And yes, they would have killed me, but they didn't. So why am I struggling, right? And it's it's so, it's just such an incorrect premise. Again, it's back to the broken leg. It's not about whether or not you quote unquote deserve it or mm-hmm. have the right, because what does that mean, right? Who has the right to PTSD? Who would we wish that on? Who deserves it? Right. Nobody, right? It's like, no one wants to be dealing with this, but if you are, you are. And that's a combination of what you experience, your biological factors, your neurological factors, your personality type, right? The way you process information. So there's no, there's just no shame in it. And, and there is no comparison. It's just that if you have it, you have it, period. Right. So it's, I really wish, I really wish people could understand that, you know, we're starting to get to the place where people realize like, 
oh, maybe it's not just the military that can have this. Oh, yeah. And I'm like, uh, yeah, that's step one, right? Yeah. But as you're saying, it's it's such a myriad of trauma types. It's, it's such a myriad of factors that lead to it. And yes, you will always look at people and say, like, they experience something worse and they don't have it. So why should I have it? But again, like, that's like sitting there with a broken leg and being like, well, I'm not going to get a cast because I don't deserve this broken leg. Right. It's just crazy. Yeah. Right. And to people out there who were raised in environments where yeah. it wasn't safe to be yourself, maybe there wasn't shouting, maybe there wasn't hitting or sexual abuse, but you didn't feel safe. Yeah. You didn't feel protected. You felt like you were on your on your own that that's a thousand cuts and it's still going to land you in the uh emotional hospital whatever you want to call it exactly um it doesn't matter what gets you to that place where you don't feel safe in the world exactly and it's not for anyone else to judge either right i think my biggest issue was that i was judging i felt like i didn't have the right but i was also afraid you know you sort of touched on this earlier about uh, talking about being afraid to share about that experience that someone might try to invalidate it. Um, but it, again, it's a real, I just, this, I always, always, always come back to this physical comparison because I love it so much because the, it makes the image so absurd suddenly, right? It's like when I had PTSD, I thought people could tell me that I didn't deserve to have it. But if I was lying on the street with a broken leg, right, we can never imagine that experience if we draw the mm -hmm. parallel to a physical. Um, you know, nobody's going to walk by me on the street and be like, I really think you're milking it. You should just right. get up and yeah. walk it off, right? Yeah. Like, it just doesn't happen that way. And I just wish we could start to conceptualize mental health the same way because it's the same thing. It just is what it is. So, so you're looking out the window <laughs> yeah. and you see uh, body pieces. I do, yeah. What's, what's next? And if at any point you're like, you know what? Let's move <laughs> on. Uh, yeah. I, d I don't want to. Um, it's okay. I really, um, I think that. The truth for me, and this is not not prescriptive in any way, it's not the truth for everybody, but the truth for me is that the more I talk about it, the more I heal. And that's, again, not for everyone, and I can totally understand that not everyone wants to share that publicly, um, but for me that really has been true, so I, I don't mind. Um, yeah, I, I was standing at my window, and um, I'm standing there trying to understand you know, how this sort of movie scene won't fade is literally what I'm doing. I'm shaking my head and closing my eyes and reopening them. And the scene is still there. I'm doing it again. And the scene is still there. Um, feels a little bit like I've lost my mind because I can't, again, I, I just can't make this reality real in my brain. Mm -hmm. Um, and as I'm standing there, I see the gunman walking in. So they're walking through the, the blood splatter and, and the smoke and they have AK 47s and, uh, something in my brain, some alarm went off and was like, you're visible. Um, and I realized that, you know, having my window curtains open, if I could see them, they could potentially see me. And so I sort of slammed the curtains shut and then froze because I, I, I don't know, because what do you do, right? They, I didn't know how many terrorists there were. I didn't know where they were located. Um, I just... You remember what you felt in your body? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I sure do. I can feel a, a tingle of it now. Um, yes. I literally remember having the thought, I'm having a heart attack. Like, I, I'm actually going to die. Before any terrorists arrive mm -hmm. at my room at all, 
I'm going to die because my heart is pounding so hard. It's physically painful. Like it hurts. Um, so I remember my heart is slamming and I could not breathe. I say it felt like there was a vice grip on my lungs. And I mean that so literally, I I wasn't moving. I was literally frozen to the spot and I couldn't breathe. And my heart is just slamming so much. It hurts. And that was the thought was like, my heart is going to explode. This must be how it feels. Um, but I, (laughs) and at that point, room service was out of the question. Yeah. I, you know, it was like, I did skip lunch, but mm-hmm. no, I actually had lunch, so I didn't even didn't even really need the room service, but just would have been nice to have the option. You yeah, know? It is. I had gotten room service for breakfast, and so I was just throwing <laughs> off my schedule really was the thing. Exactly. Um I I didn't I didn't have any sort of like uh training, so I don't know if it would have been different if I had some sort of training to make my brain say like, oh, okay, I'm supposed to do this. Right. Um, but the only thing I thought was... And you're frozen on the spot. Tr- like, l- like truly, truly, I guess not literally frozen, right. but truly, I mean, it's Africa, so I was not frozen, but I was, I could not yes. move. Um, I just, something in my brain was like, say goodbye, say goodbye. It was like the last, you know, people have all these questions that crack me up. Did you, did your life flash before your eyes or, you know, um, did you, <laughs> did you look back on your regrets? like, uh, no, that feels like it would have taken a lot of energy that I didn't have right then. Um, and time. So I think I was, I was basically under the impression that death was imminent, um, within seconds to minutes. Mm -hmm. And so the question was, you know, what can I do with that amount of time? And it, it was certainly wasn't any like conscious thinking that I was doing at the time, but the answer that my brain returned was like, say your goodbyes to your family. Cause that's, that's makes sense as the last thing you'll ever do, right? Like say goodbye to them. And uh, yeah, see, now if you talk about me getting emotional, here we go. This is the this is the part of the story that generally still gets me. It's like talking about its impact on my family. Um, but I, I knew that I, uh, I didn't, I thought I was dead, right? It's really important to me that people understand, like, I thought I was dead. And so there was no point to me in saying, I'm really scared or, you know, I miss you or I wish I was there because those things were out of reach. It just wasn't, it just wasn't real to be saying those things. They're all true, but my brain was in like, you have 20 seconds left to live mode. And so I just thought, you know, my family will get one last text from me what do I want them to say? What's the text that they'll hold on to for the rest of their lives that was the last thing that their daughter said to them before she was murdered in this hotel? And so I just said, there's a terrorist on the hotel, a terrorist attack on the hotel. I love you. And I just thought, I don't know. I'm very sensitive. So maybe it was like, for me... that's what I would want to hear in one of my loved one's last moments or something. But I, I remember thinking, you know, if I say I'm scared or I wish I wasn't alone, it's almost, um, it'll make it hard for them to heal in the aftermath of this. So that's what I, that's what I sent. And I remember being like, God, I wish, I wish I could convey more than that. Like, I love you feels so, mm, I don't 
not impactful enough in this moment. Like I wish there was a better word for mm-hmm. what I'm trying to tell them, but it's better than nothing. Describe more about what you felt in your body. So yeah. your heart is pounding yeah. out of your chest. Does your body feel numb at all? Were there moments where you felt like you mm-hmm. were floating above yourself? I was sh- like I was shaking to a level that's hard for me to explain or like recreate for people today. I had trouble literally like sending those texts I was just talking about um, because my hands were shaking so bad. It was genuinely very difficult to use my phone. Um, so I remember that really specifically. And I, while I didn't feel like I was floating out of my body, what did happen is there was a sense of like ice coldness that went through my Mm. entire body. And I, the only way that I can describe that feeling is to say, it felt like I was already dead. It felt like I was dead. And I think that it was this sense of it, that feeling flooded my body when I, I, leaned up against a door and just slid down like my back slid down the door onto the floor and I was sitting there waiting to die and I the thought in my brain was um I hope it's quick I hope it's quick I hope it's quick I hope it's quick you know if there's any mercy in this world just let it be one bullet and and instantaneous um but you know the the subtext of that is I had completely accepted my death right there was no how can I escape or what should I say? Or is there anything I could do to get out of it? It was literally just let it be quick, let it be quick. And that's when I was just flooded with this. I was, yeah, I, I can't explain it any other way. My whole body felt ice cold. And I think that's what that was. That was like mm-hmm. the acceptance of death. So, but no, I think I wish I could have. I'm surprised that there was no dissociation because I think it would have been helpful <laughs> in, mm. in that moment too pull myself out of out of there a little bit but no i always felt very much in in my body and in in a real bind so and so what's next yeah. uh, i imagine you checked that the door was locked i did yes good guess um yes although to be fair uh at this point you know the thing about fight flight or freeze mode is um you lose your ability to rationalize, right? Mm-hmm. You, your pure survival instinct. Um, and definitely the, the thing I felt strongest was freeze first mm-hmm. and then flee, right? Yes. I like really, 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 really wanted to run away. Um, but I could hear the gunshots and the explosions going off. And so it was like... I can't imagine. Yeah, like no I direction is safe. Yeah. Yeah, I I hope not. Truly, like when people say that, I'm like, that's good. I This is not something, truly, not something I would wish on anyone. Um, so, so I made a call, I called, um, Google has like an emergency hotline and I called that line and they are the ones who, the woman who answered the phone, Melissa was my rational thought process, Mm -hmm. which I desperately, desperately needed. And so she was literally just in my ear saying, did you check that the door is locked? Um, barricade it with any furniture you can physically move, uh, turn your lights off so that it looks like no one's there. Um, see if you can find a hiding spot where you wouldn't be visible from the door when it's breached, things like that, that like, you know, I joke, but also half not joking. I I think I would still be standing 
right there on that spot today Mm -hmm. because I didn't, you know, I just didn't have any capacity to respond to what was happening. Right. It was so wildly outside my realm of experience. And it's, it's hard to overstate how disorienting shock can be, how much it's like it zaps 99% of your brain. Yes. I think there's a segment of the population where they become more focused. Yes. Yes. But I think for, yes, I think for uh, a lot of people, it's just your brain goes to screensaver. Yes. That's a really good way to put it because the thing is, it's actually wildly unhelpful. That's what's so frustrating is like, I really could have used my rational capacity at that point to try to come up with an answer, but I couldn't access it. Exactly. Mm -hmm. It felt like my brain, brain was in screensaver mode. That's, I haven't heard that, but it's very accurate. Um, so it was, a, it was a real, um, boon, I guess is the word to have someone be super calm and super rational and just instructing me, like, you need to move from where you're standing. You need to, you know, check your locks. You need to this and that. And asking me, can you see, you know, do you hear footsteps outside of your door? How far do you think they are from you? These questions that, Again, like I couldn't even begin to access the question, much less the answer, until she was asking. And I was like, okay, okay, focus on the question, get her an answer. And that helped me understand, you know, that I I wasn't – they were not physically outside my door yet. And so I wasn't imminently in danger. I had a minute to try to, you know, prolong my life to try to figure out a way to live. Um, So I I (laughs) – there were these shelves in my bathroom. She said to put as many doors between me, doors, walls, et cetera, between me and the bullets as I could. And I remember thinking, I can hear, <laughs> I can hear bullets and explosions on both sides of me. So uh, which direction do we go here? And there are big windows, both in my bathroom and in my bedroom. You're supposed to stay away from windows. So I'm like, fuck, dude, like, <laughs> I'm really at a loss here. Um, so, you know, there's a, there were closets and then doors into my bathroom. So I was like, okay, maybe that's as many walls and doors as I can put between myself on both sides. So I went into the bathroom, closed that door and locked it, which was absurd. It was one of those little push locks that like clicks, like ping. I was like, oh, great. Now I'm safe. Great. Problem solved. Um, But there were some shelves uh, under my sink, you know, where they're like, there's a a hairdryer and folded towels, you know, if you can picture a hotel room, pretty standard. Um, but there was sort of a bottom shelf that had had folded towels that I'd used. And uh, and I thought, you know, I think if I crush myself into like a wild sort of contorted position, I can fit on that shelf. Then pull the towels back in so it'll look like they're just folded towels here. And it doesn't really look like a person should be able to fit there. Right. So I think it's like not obvious. I remember being like, I can't hide in the closet or under the bed because like every movie I've ever seen... Everybody knows to look there. Like, don't go there. So I was trying to come up with something creative, I guess. Um, And so I crushed myself into the shelf. I had huge bruises afterward. And I pulled the towels back in. And I remember one second of being like, dude, I nailed it. Like, there's no way. There's no way you would know someone's here. And then just crushing disappointment thinking, I just barricaded the door. So... They're not going to stop until they find who's in this room because oh. somebody barricaded the door. Oh. Yeah. And I remember just like the air went back out of me, just so deflated and being like resigned to it again. Like, okay, well, fuck it. <sighs> you know, I, I tried. <laughs> I did the absolute best I could. Um, and so did you stay in there? I did. Yeah, yeah, I was in there for quite a while. I was in there for about an hour, I think. 
Um, Timestamps are a little bit hard for me, but I think it was about an hour. Some things feel like they took days, and then some things feel like, you know, some things that genuinely took hours feel like they were over in seconds. Um, But I stayed in there for quite a while. And uh, I came out eventually, actually, because there were reports that it was not a terrorist attack. Uh, All of the... (laughs) All of the reports that were coming, I, I don't know from where. They, there were reports coming out that it was a bank robbery, not a terrorist attack. And you were getting this information by phone talking to your mm-hmm. contact? Yep. yep. We both, I heard it both actually over text from some friends and family members and then over the phone um, from from the security line that there were these reports that it was a, a bank robbery. And the security line, they were back in the States? Yes. Yeah, okay. they're literally. So I used to work in Mountain View, California, like at Google headquarters. And uh, she was she was there um, ch- chatting with me on the phone from there. And I actually remember a moment of like very intense jealousy thinking about, oh, you know, yeah. I know like where your desk is in your chair and you're so comfortable in your like ergonomic seating as you talk to me on the phone. And I would literally give... Any material possession, maybe almost anything, to be sitting at my cubicle there instead of here. Um, so I remember just a moment of like, I actually know where you are, and I wish more yeah. than anything that I was that I was there also. Um, but yeah, so I came out uh, of the shelf, and you know, the the report was not "you're safe, it's over." The report was, "Look, they're not trying to murder civilians; um, they're just trying to get out with the money they're trying to steal," and. Did you know that was not true at that moment? I mean, define no. <laughs> right. I really, really, really wanted to believe it. You know, yeah. I really, really, really wanted it to be a bank robbery and not a terrorist attack. Um, and so I think we can convince ourselves of a lot of things, right? Mm-hmm. And so I, I tried really hard to believe it. Um, but my dad texted me exactly what I was thinking, which was something along the lines of... Um, why would a bank robber wear a suicide vest? Yeah. Right. And, you know, bank, bank robbers don't blow themselves up. That would be very antithetical to their purposes. Yeah. Um, and and it was in that moment of seeing that text that, again, and, and I think this is very much a theme of the experience of these emotional highs and lows. Well, there weren't a lot of highs, but, you know, it was like less mm-hmm. low and then really low. Right. <laughs> um, but there'd be just a glimmer of hope, right? Oh, it's it's a bank robbery, not a terrorist attack. And then like a few moments later, you're like, no, that doesn't make any sense. They're, they're definitely coming to kill us. Um, so I did come out of the hiding place and onto the floor of the bathroom then, uh, which were, which is where I was almost exclusively for the next 16 hours while the attack. 16 raged hours. On. Yeah, it was. Yeah, oh I was in there. Oh, my God. Yeah, I was in there for 17 hours, which wasn't even the whole time. It oh went for over 20 God. hours. Yeah. Yeah. I can't is. imagine the toll <laughs> that took on your central nervous system. Yeah. See, I even cannot. right now, I want to respond to you and go like, well, there are a lot of terrorist attacks that have lasted a lot longer, Paul. So, you know, don't don't baby me. Oh, right? my God. Shut the but- fuck up. <laughs> mean voice in Maylee's head exactly she that breaks my heart that that's what you're telling yourself i know i know i'm working on i'm really working see i at least hear the voice and i i know it's not right and i can put say it out loud so i'm working on now correcting the voice um yes i think that objectively you're exactly right it is hard to put into words the toll that it took on on my on my nervous system on my ability to to think i mean by the end it was like difficult to 
to send a text. It was difficult to string a thought together and type it out and send it to my family. And I think it started to feel like, this is a weird way to put it, but it started to feel like hope was too expensive for me. Like I couldn't afford any more hope because I went through so many heartbreaks in in those 17 hours of like the hope being taken away Mm -hmm. and then a little bit of hope back and the hope being taken away. And it just started to feel like hope wasn't wasn't worth it anymore. Like no more energy can be diverted to hope because it will be taken away again. So just stop trying to find it. You know? It's like a microcosm of the misanthrope or the curmudgeon who just doesn't exactly. want to be hurt again. And so they adopt a cynical attitude. Their life becomes small. Yes. They cut people off or yes. push them away. Yes. It's, it's really well put because I did. And I think this is something maybe most people will never be able to understand as, as I say it. Um, but I remember by hour 15 or 16, like literally having the thought or the belief maybe that like this is my new life. I don't know. The gunshots will go on forever. The explosions will go on forever. Like, this is how I live now. And and by the end, I was catching these. Um, I'd been awake for, like, 30 or 40 hours by then. And so I'd catch these, like, uh, tiny snippets of, of sleep, which is extraordinary to think about. You're sitting in this bathroom. You're, you're huddled into a, a ball tucked between the toilet and the half wall to try to put porcelain between you and bullets. And you're drifting in and out of consciousness, right? How can you do that um, with with this kind of situation going on around you? But, you know, that is, that's the toll, right? That's how much I started to adjust after 17 hours. And then you think about the fact that there are people who live in environments like that, you know, in, in war-torn Isn't that countries. Unbelievable? I, yes. I, I, it is to this day hard for me to wrap my head around that. It was like, the worst thing that I could have imagined. And, and even within 17 hours started to feel like this is going to be my new normal and, and I can't afford to hope. I can't imagine if that was all the time. I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm so thankful to not feel that way today, but I, I don't know how I would survive if, if that was my life. I don't know. So you're you're in there for 16, 17 hours, mm-hmm. and are there long stretches of silence, or is are you hearing stuff, or is it hard to, to remember? No, it's not hard to remember. Um, basically, no silence, because also the fire alarm was going off. So that was... <laughs> of course it was. Yeah, it's like, um, you know, isn't that an interrogation technique or something to like make people right. extra miserable? You, Yeah, the lights and the alarm and the... Yeah. Oh, my God. Um, so the fire alarm went off for a, a good portion of it. Um, but there was this bizarre moment in the morning. So, you know, it's it's just after three when they attack and it goes all Three the way in the afternoon in the afternoon mm. and it goes all the way through the through the evening and into the morning. I'm told actually now I have no idea if this is true that they're trying to make morning news in the US. Mm. So they actually time it that way on purpose. Which, you know, would have been a great just don't go back to your hotel when morning news is on in the US. Anyway, <laughs> um so it goes all the way through the night and next morning and into the next afternoon, right? Um and so I uh, I remember this moment. The sun had come up again, and there was this lull, this true lull. The fire alarm was not going off. I could not hear gunshots. I could not hear grenades. Uh, no cars were exploding. 
and uh, and the birds started chirping. There was a tree right outside my window in the courtyard, and uh, and the birds came back and started chirping, and it was probably the most surreal thing I'll ever experience. It was this bizarre moment of like, like, this is such a weird thing to say, but like, what the fuck are we doing? Like, why do humans do this to each other? There's a beautiful sunny day outside with birds sitting in the trees chirping who give zero fucks about what we're doing, right? Like, I don't know, you guys are outrageous. Mm -hmm. We're going to sit in this tree and and sing our morning songs. And it was just extraordinary to be like, I can't believe that this is what we do with this beautiful world that we live in. It was so sad (laughs) and surreal. And it felt like um, an insane juxtaposition, you know, like maybe I could be sitting in the park safely listening to birds chirp and a sunny day. But how can you be sitting in the middle of an active terrorist right. attack looking outside at a sunny day with birds chirping? It's like when you find out that somebody you love died and you hear children playing outside. Yes, I'm sure. It's exactly. like you want to run out and just stop everybody right. and, and go. Don't you know what's going on? Don't you know what's going on? Right. Exactly. Don't you understand what's happening to me here? Yes. It was very much like that. And it made me feel very um, small, but not in a bad way i don't think just like yeah we're just a small part of this world and sometimes we (laughs) really mess it up and we really get Mm -hmm. it wrong and there was something just like um i think i guess i would say it made my heart ache it really made my heart ache Mm -hmm. in that moment and so then what happened yeah so um I'd been texting with my family the whole time. People often ask me, like, why didn't you mm-hmm. didn't you want to hear their voices? And I think that some protective part of my brain actually knew that I would not be able to function if I heard their voices. It would have been the last straw, the last, like, hold I had on my ability to not rationalize, but just function. Like if I had heard their voices, I just, I feel like I would have melted into a puddle and been, Mm -hmm. I don't know, unable to do whatever, you know, if I got another instruction from Melissa, I needed to be able to do that. And I just felt like if I heard their voices, I was going to break down in in an irrevocable way. And so um, I was texting, sort of giving them updates and, uh, those would come and go to, you know, uh, okay, the special forces are on their way to your room to evacuate you. Um, okay, we've gotten the call. They're approaching. Are they outside your door? Um, you know, I'd be like, I don't, I don't think so. I don't hear anything. How, how would I know? Well, they have a special password, so they'll knock, and then they'll say their special password. It, is it? Is it? Am I still supposed to be waiting? Are they supposed to, what? Um, you know, and then it would be, oh, okay, they got another call or there's another booby trap or they were engaged by the terrorists again. Um, it'll be a while. We'll let you know when they can come get you. And so it, it started at 3 in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. And you said that your experience with it was 16, 17 hours. hours yeah. So that brings us to uh, what, <laughs> what, what would be? At like 7 a.m. basically. Okay, 7 a.m. Mm-hmm. And... And it lasted until um, you said the the afternoon of the next day. Yes. So, what um, 
ended it for you at that 17 hours yeah. and what was continuing to happen until the afternoon. Yeah. So the <laughs> the really crazy part about this story, but probably my favorite part about this story is um, the, so <laughs> I guess it's important. Maybe it's not important, but it feels important to say um, I really didn't know anything about special forces before this. You know, I don't know, like maybe what I had seen in the movies. Um mm. But uh, I I know now that there was a, a man from the British SAS, which is like an elite special forces unit um, in the UK, who, you know, uh, was in the area and decided, literally decided to come rescue everybody. Like he ran in with his like basic equipment that he could grab and was like, I'm going to go respond to this situation. Um and he started going through the uh, – it was like sort of a system of buildings, and he started going through them and clearing them. So there are all these photos of him, you know, pulling – physically pulling people out, and, uh, and, and he started engaging the terrorists and leading the actions against the terrorists because, um, because he not only responded, but he was the only one. He led the response. So um, – he he really did save our lives that day, which is incredible. Like, how do you think about one guy saving over 700 people who were in that complex? Um, but that is really what swung the experience. So, you know, Westgate Mall lasted days. Um, and I think that, not I think, our experience also would have lasted for days. Right. And that, that was the uh, coinciding yeah. event with the hotel. The Westgate Mall? Yes. Oh, uh, no. Westgate Mall was several years beforehand. Oh, yep, okay. Sorry. Um, was an event led by this same extremist group against civilians yeah, in and Nairobi. Yeah, I, wa- I watched a documentary on that. Yeah, it was chilling. Yes. Chilling. Exactly. So same group, new target a few years later oh, is this hotel complex. Yep. And uh, and this is such a fucked up thing to have to say in our world. I exactly. get my terrorist events mixed up. Yep. Exactly. So do I. I, or certainly, you know, before this, I certainly did. And, and I feel the same way. Like, how could I n- not have even known? And, and you know, this same group also attacked a, a school in Nairobi, which I didn't even know until afterward. And then, you know, the there's the hotel in Mumbai, like different group, but similar circumstances. And in Mali, and I know about them now, but had no idea and certainly would have confused them at that time. Um, so... It, my point is just that the reason this didn't go on for days is because this guy didn't let it. So he, um, as as I was hiding in my room, he was working through the complex, clearing the buildings and engaging the terrorists. And ultimately, he was the one who, um, what's a nice word for this, neutralized them, K- mm-hmm. killed the terrorists. Um, and so that's what was happening. So uh, he had killed the first two terrorists who were above me with uh, the hostages that were up there and, and the terrorists were in the gym, which was the very top floor, two of them. Mm-hmm. And then there were two left, but uh, I don't really know what happened. I guess the understanding was that I think a miscommunication happened somewhere where people were under the impression that all the terrorists were dead. Mm-hmm. And so they were able to come in and extract the Americans. So I was extracted by like large American dudes in bulletproof vests who like knocked on my door and were like, Hey, Maylee, um, we're here to extract you, which was wild after listening to gunshots and explosions for 17 hours. And you said, motherfucker, I have do not disturb. (laughs) You could have called first, honestly, 
Um, what did that feel like in that in that moment oof. when they when I imagine when they said your name that probably <laughs> meant a lot. It it really did, and and it's funny because actually what I remember is that the person who was on the phone with me. So um, on the Google security hotline, they change their shift every eight hours. So I actually spoke to three different people. So by then I was on the phone with a different uh, person, a guy by the end, and uh, and he he was like really stern on the phone. He's like, I don't care that they're saying your name. I don't care that they have American accents. They need to prove their credentials. Like, don't open your door for anyone. I don't care who it is. And I didn't know then what I know now, which is that in many of these terrorist events, um, either one of the terrorists will have a, a Western accent mm-hmm. or they will force a hostage to uh-huh. ask for you in, a, in an you know American accent or whatever mm-hmm. makes the person inside the room feel safe so that you open your door so that they can kill you. So he was absolutely right to be telling me that, but I was so done <laughs> being there um, that I was like, yeah, yeah, I got it. And I hung up. And just threw the door open. Um, and and I, how did I feel in that moment? I don't think there's a word for it. Like, I think of words like exuberant or, um, you know, joyous. And they sound so hollow compared to what I felt. Um, it's literally like these strangers are here to give you your life back. Everything. Your, your people that you love. Your, you know... Ugh. A Sunday morning, sitting in a park, listening to the birds chirp. Mm-hmm. Everything that you experience from this day forward is because these type of people um, gave it back to you. And and you don't know them. And so how bizarre that they're here to do that for you. Um, so it was the best experience of my life. I always joke that um, yeah, I think a lot of people are like, my wedding was the best day of my life. And I'm always like, Pfft. My wedding doesn't even come close. Great day. Awesome day. Right. Love my husband. He's the bomb. But uh, yeah, this was better. <laughs> so in uh, there actually was a hilarious moment just before I opened the door that I still we make a lot of jokes about this in my house. Um, the the wonderful gentleman on the phone was trying really hard to get me to get them to identify themselves. And so I'm like, uh, I'm supposed to ask you who you're with because I like don't know how to ask this question. <laughs> the guys outside the door go, don't worry about it. And I was like, uh, so you are terrorists? Like, what the hell? What do you right. mean? Don't worry about it. Right. Um, but I was like, you know what? At this point, let's just give it a try. Sure. Let's go. So I opened the door anyway. And they were wonderful. And uh, and there there was um, they they really had to, like, s- support me. They had to physically help me get get downstairs and, and out of the hotel. So it was wild. It was like a movie, right? Like you see the the end scene where you're walking out of this this you know it should be a tv set that mm-hmm. looks almost post-apocalyptic right broken glass and smoke and blood and you know you're you're defiantly walking out the front door with these two huge dudes like accompanying you out to the armored vehicle um because you somehow have have made it and you're alive after 17 hours so that's another one that that when i see it in my head it, it's more like a movie scene than than like my life mm. super weird and so it continued to to go on for hours after you were yes. extracted. Holy fuck! Yes. So are you taken to an armored vehicle. Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. Armored vehicle to to the embassy, and uh, you know what I know now that I didn't know then is I was already starting to have symptoms from that traumatic experience, which is not shocking, right? Right. Um, but it was really difficult for me to be in that embassy because I was convinced that it was a a target. I was like. 
I've seen a million movies where they attack the embassy. That was guys. my first thought when right? you said, <laughs> right? I was like, I don't know who's in charge of this, but like, no way is this a good place for us to be. Um, but you know, where is safe? The airport? Like, it's like nothing felt like a great plan. Right. Um, and then the embassy there, the U.S. embassy in Nairobi has these doors that um, are weighted, so they shut and they sort of slam into place, and then they lock. Uh, you have to have like a badge or something to get through the building. And I was like, <laughs> I think I might have been more on edge in the embassy than I even was in the hotel. It was like constantly all around me, something was slamming and I was like jumping and I'd turn and look everywhere because I was, I was just waiting. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't wondering if the terrorists were going to attack the embassy. I was waiting for the new attack to begin. And those noises were just, just grating on what was already a completely frayed nervous system at that point. So. It was tough to be in there, but I was safe. So that's the physically safe. And that's, that's what really mattered. So it was a good stop ultimately. So what was next? I went to the airport and, uh, got, got on a plane, went through, through Germany and back to the U S I, I mentioned that I lived in Germany for six months. And so, um, very happy, very comfortable to touch down in, in Germany and be speaking German and like, mm-hmm. yeah, I know how to do this. And I feel really safe and, um, you know, there are all these guards in the airport and it's clean and it's organized. And I was like, yeah, awesome. I'm so stoked to be here. And then being me and being like really loud, uh, I don't think about the fact that I call my family from the Frankfurt airport and I'm stoked, right? Like, I'm like, yeah. And they're asking me questions and I'm still kind of in shock. And, uh, so I'm answering very like vividly with a lot of detail like yeah and i looked out the window and i could see his leg and it was so bad and the gunman came in and it was fucking terrifying you guys and i realized that i have like an entire crowd of german business people because i'm in the business class lounge in frankfurt airport oh my god and i'm in like a cubicle acting as if it's soundproof which is not and it's like six in the morning and i stand up from that cubicle and there's an entire audience of of german business people and i literally was just like um, sorry, see ya, and just kind of like bailed and went to my plane. But, you know, it was weirdly this moment of I'm a spectacle, right? There's, I could have told a million stories from my life before that wouldn't have garnered an audience. And now suddenly I talk about this one day I had in my life and like people are standing up and turning around and audiences are gathering and that, yeah, that was the first time I realized, like, this is an experience that a lot of people can't relate to. And that means that now talking about it, like, I am going to be a spectacle. I don't know how to how to do that. So it was it was really bizarre. And talk about the dichotomy between it being a spectacle that I imagine you don't want to be. <laughs> sure but also wanting to heal by sharing your story. Exactly. Um, well, it's been a journey, right? Um, I was just I was just having this talk with my mom yesterday. We were talking about the fact that through the terrorist attack and through healing, you know, I, I've put out this book, Terrorist Attack Girl, which talks about all of these things in my journey with PTSD. Um, and I, I talk on podcasts and I, I give talks to, to corporations and at conferences and all of it centers around this experience. Um, but the truth of the matter is I always wanted to write a book, right? And I've, I've always really cared deeply about connecting with people and sharing stories. Um, and I, I believe that hope and empathy can change the world. And so it was not that 
this thing changed who I was and I'm some like special inspirational person, right? That's not the thing. The thing is I took these pieces of my personality before and with a ton of help from my therapist, I reconstructed them in the aftermath and and chose how I was going to move on from that experience and and how I was going to let it play a role in my life. Right. But it's not like it's not like it changed me or like made me into some special inspirational person. But the truth of the matter is it is sort of a spectacle. It is something that most people can't relate to. And we have this natural curiosity to be like, oh, my God, what was that like? And how did you get through it? Um, And I realized that I could use that to help people. I realized that, like, people want to hear this story and. If I, if I can wrap my brain around it such that I can wrap my words around it, then no one will have to feel, I would hope, you know, that's my ultimate goal, is that no one would have to feel the way that I felt in the aftermath of the trauma, that I'm a spectacle and that I don't deserve to feel this way and that I'm a piece of shit and that everyone would be better off if I had died in that attack and that... And that's one of the symptoms of PTSD. Exactly. That is Feeling one of the Feeling of worthlessness. Yes. And people don't realize... That it's a symptom. And and the other thing that's a symptom, and it's really important to me, it's a symptom. And I think, like, if we just spend one second thinking about that, when we have a cold, you know, one of the symptoms is we might have a cough or a runny nose. And we know inherently that that's temporary, right? And one day we won't have this cold, and so we won't be coughing or have a runny nose. Maybe we'll get a different cold and we'll have it. But, again, it's a symptom. Um, and it was the same for me with the worthlessness it was a symptom. And as I worked on my PTSD, that symptom came down and and diminished. And so I didn't feel worthless, but that symptom in particular is so hard to see past. Yeah. Right. How do you sit there and say, right now, I feel like my whole family would be better off if I were dead, but I bet you that's just a symptom. And in a few months, you know, I'm going to feel a lot better. But it, it really was, it really was a symptom. It really did diminish. Um, and I, I, I hope that people can hold on to that, you know, if they hear this story and they're feeling that way. Um, so, yeah, I just decided, you know, as as I got better that I didn't want people to feel alone because that's the other symptom, right? Is like this pain hurts so much and it's so specific to me and my experience that there's no way other people can understand there's no way that anyone has gone through what I went through or or is – mine was meaner because <laughs> the voice in my head is really mean. Mine was there's no way anyone can relate to being this weak. That's really how wow. I felt. Yeah. No one can relate to being this weak. And what's the point of, of living when I am this weak? And uh, obviously super, super broken. Yeah, that voice in my head is mean. We're working on it. Um But here's the thing that I love so much that, like, gives me so much hope is, like, people who are getting help are the strongest, most badass people on the planet. Fuck yeah. Because it is so hard. Like, it is. look, I've gone to Stanford. I worked at Google. I've been a preschool teacher, which honestly is the hardest job I've ever had. Mm -hmm. And those things paled in comparison to how hard the therapy work was. Like, it was so hard because I was reworking my concept of self and my symptoms and my trauma and, you know, the voice inside my head, right, all at once and my identity and what I believed about the world. Like, 
There is no work like that. It's it. You know, I liken it to you make it out of a burning building, mm-hmm. and they say there's good news. There's help. It's once a week in a burning building. Exactly. 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 That's exactly right. God, that reminds me of of the. Uh, the rugby team that was stranded in the Andes Mountains. I love them. And yeah, like, I'm obsessed alive. with their story. Yes, exactly. And uh, that then they hiked out with no gear. Those t- two of them hiked out with no gear. Um, Nando eventually gets to the village and they're like, great, we're going to put you in the plane so you can show us where everyone else is, has <laughs> yes. crashed and is waiting. I think about that all the time. I'm like, oh my God, how did he do it? Same thing. Exactly. Um, yes, it is like that. And in addition to the building being on fire, we're also going to like, you know, water torture you and, you know, um, like physically torture. It's just like not only is the building on fire, but there are all these elements on top of it. Like it's so hard. And so I think it's crazy that people are ashamed that they're working mm-hmm. on themselves. I'm like, dude, I want to be out there with a sign that is like, ask my therapist how much work I did. Like, yeah. I am so proud of it. My PTSD graph is hanging above my desk. I think the people who are out there working on themselves are like hat off to them. I think we should all be wearing like merch that is like, yes. I'm a badass because it is hard. Talk about the PTSD graph. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. My most prized possession. I'm like Stanford degree. Psh, let's talk about right. my PTSD graph. Um, so uh, there is a, a clinically validated test called the PCL5 that uh, will sort of track your symptoms over time. It's a questionnaire, 20 questions. Um, and I will never forget the first time my therapist gave me that questionnaire. And it was like someone opened my brain and looked inside of it. Like it's mm-hmm. like someone knows your deepest, darkest feelings and is like, sorry, would you maybe say you're feeling this? And you're like, I feel that so much. I feel all of that. So it's like all 20 questions. I was like, yes. Oh my God, that too. Yeah, that. And it was the first time that I realized I'm not the only person feeling this. And this is a real thing. Exactly. Like so many people, in fact, that there's a damn questionnaire that they hand out. Yeah. Like, okay, my people are somewhere. Some some other people are suffering from this. And, uh, and so in that way, I actually really loved the questionnaire. And then um, she would give me that questionnaire every two weeks as mm-hmm. I worked with and her. What were the symptoms? My symptoms, um, some people really struggle with some things that I didn't struggle with. So I'll talk a little bit about both. But my symptoms, I really struggled with hypervigilance. Mm-hmm. So um, I was on edge all the time. Like if I was in a restaurant, I had to be near the exit facing it. And I literally had trouble tracking the conversation because I'd be like, how long till the gunman walk in? Which entrance will they use? What's the safest exit? How do I cover my head? Can I flip the table to like block the gunshots to get out right all the time anywhere that I was? So hypervigilance, um, avoidance. I never wanted to talk or think about the attack, which is ironic because that's like Mm -hmm. all I do these days. Um, I really struggled with panic attacks. So I had never had them before in my life. And then a fire alarm would go off and I would have a panic attack. Oh, my God. I I can't imagine what that fucking felt like. It was horror. I will never forget the first time a fire alarm went off in the aftermath. And I'm like, my brain starts to be like... um, in a real place where this thing makes sense, this might mean you need to evacuate the building. And instead I collapse onto my floor and I like can't breathe. And my husband is like, uh, I think we need to evacuate the building. And I'm like, I can't speak to you right now. I'm having a whole thing. Um, it was horrible. And yeah. And I was so convinced all the time that the terrorists were like around the corner. I couldn't, um, sleep. I would, uh, really have issues if I try to get into bed, right? Cause mm-hmm. my head's going to hit the pillow. That's when the explosion's going to go off. So those were really deeply linked for me. Um, and then I would have super, super vivid flashbacks and nightmares. Um, so I remember, honestly, one of the things that was so hard 
was that I couldn't read. I'm a big, big reader, big writer, and I love to lose myself in a book. That's like my escape. And uh, I, I couldn't concentrate for any more than like maybe seven minutes at a time before like a really vivid flashback would take over and I'd be back in that hotel with all the physical symptoms and emotional symptoms uh, as, if, as if it's happening again. And so it was like everything in my life ground to a halt. And then if you think about someone who's not sleeping, who's having panic attacks, who can't work, can't focus, and so many of those things meant that I wasn't who I felt like I was, right? Like I couldn't relate to myself because I know myself as like someone who works really long hours and like loves their job. And, you know, I couldn't do any of those things. So that was really tough. And then I'm telling myself that I'm weak and I'm useless. So that's really tough. Or the voice in my head is telling me that. Mm -hmm. And then, um, and then I'm not sleeping. So like anyone who's sleeping two hours a night, is like probably not their best self. It's going to catch up to you. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that means I'm dealing with, uh, like I'm really, really short tempered. Right. And so I'm screaming at my loved ones dealing with all of this, like rage, really bad rage. I had never really felt rage in my life before. I'm dealing with all this rage and then the guilt of that, right. All I wanted, all I wanted for 17 hours was to get out and get back to my family who I love so much. And here I am screaming at them for no reason. And I knew it was for no reason, but I could not control it. And then I'm, collapsed in a ball on my floor crying being like i'm so sorry like see it's not i shouldn't even be here i don't deserve to be here right like because why should i deserve to be here if all i wanted was to get back to them and now i'm treating them like shit right and so it's just a spiral total shame spiral guilt spiral i was exhausted i was a mess and i had no to bring this back I had absolutely no self-compassion. It was like, I don't deserve... I remember saying all the time, I didn't fight the fucking terrorists, right? Like, I don't deserve to have any symptoms. I wasn't out there. I wasn't on the front lines. I wasn't fighting them. Um, Why can't I get over it? I remember saying that all the time. Why can't I just get over it? And uh, and thankfully, therapy works. (laughs) So talk about some of the uh, things that helped you in therapy. (sighs) Yeah, my goodness. So I would spend an hour a week... uh, Sorry, an hour every... At times it was an hour every week and at times it was two hours a week um, with my therapist. And um, sh- and then like every day I would have an hour to two hours of homework. So it was like, you know, this was my life. Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But luckily I'm like a big nerd. So I was into it. Yeah. Um, and it gave me something to so much of healing from PTSD is getting back a sense of competence. I can make decisions. I can keep myself safe. I can leave my apartment without getting attacked, right? Um, Because in the aftermath, our brain goes, okay, you ended up in a really bad situation. How'd you fuck that up? How did you end up in a hotel being attacked by terrorists? What are you going to do differently next time? And then you're like, well, I don't really know how I ended up there. And so I just shouldn't make any decisions at all because apparently when I make decisions, it leads to really bad, really dangerous Mm -hmm. outcomes. So it's relearning that sense of competence. And that homework was a big part of that. Like, okay, I can do this assignment that she gave me, even if it's hard, even if it sucks, I can do it. And then watching how I would get a little bit better, Mm -hmm. a little bit better. And I was like, oh my God, I am competent. One of the worst casualties of trauma is doubting or discounting our instinct. Yes. Oh my God. That's so well put. It really is. And I, I, I'll never forget. I was talking to a woman who used to be a sheriff in Florida. And she said, every attack I've ever heard of, when, when women were attacked and they came into the station, do you know what they all had in common? And I was like, no, what? She's like, they all had a bad gut feeling that they ignored. She's like, I heard that from so many women. They, they'd think something about this isn't right or I shouldn't go this direction or, you know. 
and and I yeah never ever ever discount your instincts no matter you know no matter what we've been through because those instincts have been finally honed over a long period of evolution so you yeah. gotta gotta listen to them and yet it's so hard when we're dealing with say something you know OCD or something like that where our brain is lying to us yes to know when is it our healthy instinct and when is it the sickness you know keeping us trapped indoors and pushing people away getting in the way yes and you know i think that i was probably 27 when i realized like truly internalized the fact that our brains do lie to us like i i did not know that growing up i've always had a really mean voice inside my head um but i've never challenged it and in a way i became very dependent on it because i credit that voice with my success Mm -hmm. right i'm like that voice is so mean to me it keeps me motivated right because i'll never be good enough so i'll always push myself harder for more and uh that came to a screeching halt when i got ptsd because i couldn't i couldn't push myself through how do you get an a plus having ptsd right what's what's the what's the superstar way to you know deal with mental health issues like there isn't one and so i had to confront the fact that my brain was lying to me and begin to distinguish exactly as you're saying what's what's true that I'm hearing and feeling and what's not because I feel them both acutely. Right. So how do I distinguish? But yeah, I had a, a ton of assignments in therapy. Um, a lot of what I did was um, keeping my world from getting really small. You talked about like curmudgeons who might make their world mm-hmm. small because they've been hurt. Um, that's a huge thing that happens in the aftermath of trauma, right? Okay, well, hotels aren't safe and big crowds aren't safe and loud noises aren't safe. And, and so we start to reel ourselves back. Well, I don't want to go to that restaurant because I can't enjoy it because I'm just going to be focused on where the exit is. So I'm going to skip, you know, my friend's birthday and, you know, all these events that are outside of my apartment. And for me, I love to work out. That's like my Zen, um, read and work out. That's how I like deal with life. And uh, I couldn't go to the gym, right? All the times that someone will like drop a weight. I was like, my heart was in my throat. So I was like, you know, it's fine. I just don't, that's fine. I don't need the gym. Mm-hmm. I don't need restaurants. I don't need the gym. I don't need the grocery store. And the list was getting really long of things I didn't need. And my world was getting really, really small. And so it was gradually re-exposing myself to those things to confront the lie that my brain was telling me, mm-hmm. right? So you've got to go back to hotels gradually, right? This is not about white knuckling. This is not about how miserable can I make myself. This is today I'm going to drive by a hotel, and then process the fact that, like, it wasn't being attacked and everyone there is safe. Mm-hmm. And tomorrow I'm going to sit in the parking lot. So this is kind of exposure safe. therapy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, I did a lot of, like, exposure-based work. Um, and then processing the memory, like, talking it through. And then a lot of cognitive restructuring, right? Um, I was absolutely, absolutely convinced, convinced that all of the trauma my family had dealt with was my fault. And I, that was really difficult for me. I was like, if I wasn't so fucking stupid to have ended up in this hotel that was being attacked, my parents wouldn't have had to deal with 17 hours of feeling so incompetent and like their life was being ripped apart, which is like crazy because why should I take any guilt from right. the terrorists, right. right? Like 100% their fault. Mm, I'm sure of it today. Um, but right. I, that was something my brain was telling me all the time. This is your fault. You've ruined their lives. You know, you, it is your incompetence and your stupidity Mm -hmm. that has done this to your family and shame on you for for doing that and uh and so i did a lot of cognitive behavioral work to restructure that belief and i think uh a lot of people would agree that those lies that our brain tells us is a way of trying to control 
the ugly truth that there's chaos and evil yes, in the world. Right, because we can't we can't control other people. Right. All we can control is ourselves. And so there's sort of a you know, it's there's like a bug in the code, right? I'm a tech right. nerd. There's a bug in the code because all we can do is look internally. So our brain goes, okay, well, here are all the things you need to do to make sure this never happens again. You need to be more vigilant and you need to be more aware and you need to, you know, not run late to your meetings and you need to do better research on the hotels. And and it doesn't matter because I could do all of those things and still end up in a terrorist attack like because I can't control the world. Um, so how do you make peace with that? <laughs> I mean, what well, a deep spiritual yeah. malady Ooh. or uh, conundrum. I should say that it, that is. Yeah, it is and it isn't. I think the way I make peace with it, and I don't know if the answer, this is the same answer for everyone, is like, I, this sounds very like soapbox. I'm not trying to like be on a soapbox. All I can do is try to put good into the world. That's all I can do because not everybody does. Some people are out there actively putting evil into the world. And the only thing that will combat that is good. The only thing that will combat that is hope and empathy and, and good good people. Um, and so I'll never be able to control them. And bad things could happen to me again. But all that I can do in the meantime is try to make the world a better place. And that doesn't necessarily have all this scale to it, right? Like people right. think that's about being on a stage or being president or, you know, like having some special role. Like when I say bring good into the world, I mean like, my nuclear family, right? Like, yeah, or using your turn signal. Yeah, sure. I love it. Exactly. Just like, just trying to, with my everyday life, like, put put some good out there. And I think for me, that's really been about telling people that they're not alone. Mm-hmm. That's been like my big thing because I really struggled with feeling alone, and I don't want other people to struggle with that. And one of the things that I think. One of the byproducts of trying to lead a an honest, principled life is in some weird way, it helps us have compassion for ourselves. Maybe because we begin to feel a tiny bit of self-love. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, wow, that's super interesting. I'm trying to like actively reflect on that and come up with the words to express how much I feel like that's true. Um I think there are fewer mean things for the voice to say to you. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yes. It's a defense attorney. Yes, exactly. But, you know, I I can stand by the priorities that I have in my life today. I really can. And I've thought them through. And I've worked through that and thought, you know, how do I want to spend my time and how do I want to spend my life? And again, that's not about, it's not about scale. It is about like the day-to-day life, the three people that I might interact with on a daily basis. How do I want to treat them? And am I being conscious of that? And so there are just like... It just kind of shuts that voice up a little bit because that voice is like, you're, you, um, you, uh, we're too nice. Like, you know, the voice has less to say. So I think that is, that is a good part of it. We get a little more self-compassion out of trying and I'm not always successful. Sometimes I can be a real jerk, but I'm working on it. Yeah. Yeah, That's the best I can do. Well, Maylee, thank you so, so much for the work you do and uh, for the book you wrote and for coming by and uh, digging deep back into this burning building and <laughs> and sharing these things Thanks. in such, a, such an articulate way. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. And I think um, thanks for what you do because 
this is a whole space that you created. Like before people were doing this, right? People weren't really talking about mental health a decade ago, at least not my people. And you were like, we're going to have this talk. And I think that's so cool. And that's why your podcast means so much to me. So it's uh-huh. an honor to be that here. That means a lot to me. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Oh, and if people want to know more about you, yeah. where can they follow you on social media? Where can they buy your book? Your book is called Terrorist Girl? Terrorist Attack Girl, yeah. Terrorist Attack it's Girl. It's on, on Amazon. There's a hardcover paperback uh, ebook, And then I narrated the audiobook myself. So if you're just need even more of my voice in your life uh that's out there on audible and uh you can follow me on instagram at maylee chapin i really do people message me all the time and like i really genuinely respond and really enjoy connection right if we can get connection out of tragedy i think that's a beautiful thing it really is and then um and it's m-e-y-l-i-c-h-a-p-i-n yep and then the app is called trauma brace that i made for other survivors and uh there's the, the at trauma brace is on instagram as well um, the Trauma Brace app, and so you can connect with me there also. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks, Maylee. Thank you. Many, many thanks to Maylee, and I'm glad I finally figured out why the microphone didn't sound right. <laughs> Professional. Professional as always. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Let's dive into some uh, some surveys. This is from the Voice in Your Head survey, and this is filled out by a trans man who uh, calls himself Ethy. And uh, what are there some of the things you tell yourself about yourself? I have a hard time trusting people. I'm bad with money. I'm lazy. Boy, I think uh, the lazy one. I I so believe that that is the truth. It. I think a lot of people probably feel that way. That they think I'm lazy. I I don't know. Does anybody feel like they're a consistently productive person? Or do we all feel like we fall short? I'd like to think we all feel like we fall short. Anyway, this is uh, from the Shame and Secrets survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Mike. Uh, he identifies as straight. He's in his 40s, was raised in a pretty dysfunctional uh, environment. He writes, uh, U.S. military family. Uh, he's never been sexually abused. He's not sure if he has been physically or emotionally abused. Darkest thoughts. I'm ashamed to say that I want my wife and kids to die. I have two special need ki- needs kids and a wife with a lot of health problems. I've been diagnosed with PTSD from living with them. Hypervigilant all the time for the next crisis. It's ruined me financially and emotionally. I don't feel love anymore. Wow. 
Darkest Secrets, I Hurt Myself, Razors, Box Cutters, Hammers, My Table Saw, The Pain and Blood Make Me Feel Something Again. Sexual fantasies most powerful to you, being bound and dominated by an attractive woman. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to, that I want out of my family? It would devastate my wife and kids, and even though I feel no more love for them, I can't do it. What, if anything, do you wish for? A happy, healthy life with a wife and no kids. Have you shared these things with others? No, not really. When I had a therapist, I shared an escape fantasy disappearing from my life, but that's as close as I've ever shared before. How do you feel after writing these things down? Nervous and anxious that somehow my family will find out. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? You're not alone. Thank you so much for for that. Um, that that is uh, those are the kind of truths that are so hard. I mean, uh, I can't imagine what it's like being in your position. I don't have kids. I'm no longer married. Um, I, I I can't imagine, but I'm glad that you that you wrote it out. Um, and I hope that that helps sending you some love, buddy, and your and your family. Boy. Did I handle that badly? I just felt like I dropped uh, uh, an egg onto a marble floor with that last one. I feel like I shouldn't have said anything, like sending you love. Sometimes I feel like such an idiot. I know you guys write in and you're like, oh, you're being too hard on yourself. Being, But sometimes I do truly feel like, oh, you're such a fuck up. Is that, is that really... All you have to say for that, <laughs> you dope, you self-centered dope. Can you can you now understand why I created the Voice in Our Head survey? Uh, this is a happy moment filled out by um, a woman who calls herself Crow's Feet. And she writes, I finally bought a clip clit stimulator after years of indecision. I do research, read pages of reviews, be one click away from a purchase, but then I'd back out over and over. I did that for years, but I finally bought one and holy fuck, it's amazing. I've never had an issue physically reaching orgasm, but in order to really turn myself on beforehand, I'd have to lean into a particular type of sexual fantasy, um, parentheses, non-consensual and humiliating sex uh, that is directly tied to my childhood trauma. This purchase, though, that clip, this clit stimulator, wow. The literal press of a button and I can orgasm. So happy to not have to rely on those unhelpful fantasies anymore. I definitely think they used to be helpful to me. I think they were a safe and easy way to explore my sensuality and maybe take some control over my sexual trauma. For several years now, I've really let myself lean into those non-consensual fantasies because it felt kind of good to finally stop avoiding them. But lately, I've been annoyed with the little pep talk I usually have to give myself post-orgasm. You didn't do anything wrong. You're safe. Your fantasies do not have to become realities. You're not a bad person. I'd like to maybe never have to give myself that type of pep talk ever again. And now, maybe I won't have to. <laughs> Thank you for that. And high fucking five to you. 
high five to you and your big bad clit stimulator. Uh, this is from the Voice in Your Head survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Veronica. And uh, what are some of the things you tell yourself about yourself? Mainly that I will never be able to succeed in life in general or be able to cope enough to function as well as the people around me. Wow, this is as good as the one I read uh, before the interview. Just distilling <laughs> the pain of being human into a sentence. That was beautiful. Thank you for that. Uh, this is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a trans man who calls himself Freud's wet dream. Uh, he is 19, um, identifies, I've always adhered to the asexual label, but other people make me not so sure. Uh, he was raised in a totally chaotic environment. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. I can't say no. I kept my mouth shut and complied, and enough people touched me that I either realized it was okay or I tricked myself into, quote, liking, unquote, sex. I'm still afraid. He has been emotionally abused. I don't know the term. I didn't know the term covert slash emotional incest before becoming a listener, and I get sick to my stomach because some of my only memories of my dad is him clutching me to his bare chest when I tried to wake him up in the morning. Instead of getting up, he would pull me under the covers uh, and mutter how much he loves me and not to leave. Ugh. Ten years later, I can still smell his testosterone gel and hear him whisper, Daddy loves you, baby. Don't go. It's cold. Keep Daddy warm. Does that count? Uh, yeah. Yeah, that is super fucked up. Any positive experiences uh, with the abuser? It has taken me 10 years to realize things about that bastard, and I feel like I remember new things every day. It's typically always feelings of disgust or plain hatred. Darkest thoughts. When I am intimate with my male partner, I usually get nervous in a submissive role, but I let it happen anyway. A few times, I've had the intrusive thought to dominate him and start punching, choking, and just hurting him. I think it's a fight-or-flight response, and I very often feel like I can't leave. I don't fight either. Darkest secrets. I was curious about sex and all its forms from a very young age. Around the age of six, I would hurt myself, give myself black eyes, punch myself, drop to my knees so they'd bruise and I could press on the bruises, run over my feet with a toy bike until they bled. And I would lay in bed at night and think of terrible scenarios I could be put in to punish myself mentally. I would imagine being a few inches tall and being touched by a pervert or put in a baby's diaper. I didn't know what any of it meant. I just knew the general idea of sex, and it made me feel so bad to the point where I punished myself. By 12 or 13, I would go in chat rooms with a webcam, mine was usually blocked, but not always, to watch people masturbate and talk to me while they did it. Sexual fantasies most powerful to you. If you couldn't have guessed, I have a serious daddy kink. Uh, while I am a trans male and feel very dysphoric in skirts, I can't help but fantasize about me in a plaid miniskirt and much older man in a suit. I don't feel anything from thinking that. It's not even arousing, but it's where my mind goes. Sharing that makes me feel a little gross because now I can't stop thinking about my high school teachers. 
when, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? My dad doesn't know I'm transgender. I'd like to see him a year or two after hormone replacement therapy and just say, fuck you, I'm not your baby girl. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish that I could pinpoint exactly what fucked me up, and I wish I could go back in time and figure out if that pervy neighbor touched me or something my dad did messed up my life. I wish I could find that moment and destroy it before it happened, so maybe I wouldn't have so many problems. Maybe. Have you shared these things with others? I call my partner Daddy, and he likes it. How do you feel after writing these things down? Nauseous. Unclean. I feel like a worse person than I was 10 minutes ago. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? While I said I'd like to find the one moment that messed me up so I could stop it, it doesn't work that way. Life is a series of small life-altering catastrophes. It's all about how you handle them as they come. It's okay to be fucked up. Thank you for that. And um, just the little snapshot you shared of what your dad would say to you is, uh, it made my fucking skin crawl. Um, so I feel like, listen, like, do you, do you need any bigger moments? You know, and not that your dad should accept all the blame for it, but um, I think sometimes we can put ourselves in a bit of a prison by spending all our energy looking for the moment that fucked us up uh, rather than just saying, hey, how can I start healing? How can I start getting better? How can I find connection and meaning in my life? This is an awful moment filled out by a guy who calls himself Don't Mess With Married Women Kids. Uh, and he writes, there's an email in my inbox from the Suicide Support and Resources Center reminding me that yesterday was one of the worst days I've experienced in the last 18 years. It's embarrassing, sort of. But it's also a reminder that even at my weakest, I can still fight to get past some serious pain, hurt, and disappointment. And I'm still here putting in the work to get back to where I was before wanting it all to end. Even after the past month of absolute shit, I'm still hopeful about tomorrow. And thanks for giving me a place to put these words. Oh, dude, that really touched me, man. And I'm so glad that people feel safe filling these surveys out or posting in the forum. Um, it, uh, it means a lot to me. It really does. And I love, just love seeing hope in someone's eyes or hearing it in their voice or something that they've written. Uh, the support group meeting that I just came from, um, there's so much hope in that room. There's so much love and so much joy and camaraderie. And it just, um, it just constantly amazes me. I've been going to it for 18 and a half years every Thursday night. And I never get sick of it. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself addicted to chaos. She identifies as bisexual. She's in her 20s. Uh, says that she was raised in a totally chaotic environment. She was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. 
I was sexually assaulted three times by three different males during the course of one year at the end of high school. No rape, just grabbing, touching when I was saying no and trying to get away. They were all, quote, friends or very well-liked people, so I was scared to come forward. Uh, she's been emotionally abused. My father is verbally abusive and will have random episodes of explosion where he tells me things like I'm useless, just like my mom, and how he thinks it's disgusting that I cut myself in high school. Oh, wow. Uh, any positive experiences with abusers? Yes, my dad was my best friend growing up, and we would watch every episode of Gilmore Girls together uh, and various other, quote, girly shows. Uh, every single night for years. Darkest thoughts. I have the best boyfriend in the world. We've been together almost four years and lived together. He would never do anything to hurt me. However, I keep romanticizing my chaotic and unhealthy relationship with my ex and often fantasize about cheating on my boyfriend with him. I still speak to this ex and see him occasionally. And recently I told him if I ever get a, quote, free pass, unquote, he would be the first person I called. My boyfriend has no idea, and I hate myself for it. Sometimes I wonder if it's my sex-slash-love addiction and daddy issues that make me crave being around someone unpredictable and unstable. But I also wonder if my gut is telling me I need to be with this person since these strong feelings have lasted 10 years. Those are great questions. Um, I mean, my first thought when I read that was, oh, that sounds like, uh, you know sex or love addiction or daddy issues. Um, but the fact that, I mean, you say it was an unhealthy relationship with your ex. So why would you want to get back into an unhealthy relationship? Intellectually, why would you? Emotionally, it's so funny how our, our emotions can just be so completely disconnected. We can know. Like I used to know, dude, you don't need another drink. But it's like there was something inside of me that was like, no, we need another drink. Darkest secrets. Everyone thinks I am recovered from opiate addiction and my eating disorder, but I am still actively craving drugs and have eating disordered thoughts daily. And any time I stumble across pills, I will steal them. My therapist has no idea that I have not remained 100% clean over the past two years. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I often masturbate to porn that features rough or forceful sex. Nobody knows this. I know it's a common response to being sexually abused, but it makes me sick. Um, have you shared these things with others? I have one best friend I tell everything to, other than the sexual fantasies part. And she is non-judgmental because she is just as disordered and addicted as I am. How do you feel after writing these things down? Very weird and embarrassed but also relieved to admit all of this to someone. Thank you for sharing that. Oh man, when that fucking monster is awake. I had surgery, I don't know, maybe 12 years ago. So I'd been sober like seven years at that point. And uh, they gave me something to relax me before the surgery. And it was fucking heaven. Uh, you know, and on top of that, you know, there's a nice nurse with a nice smile asking me if I'm okay and putting warm blankets on me and I'm being, you know, wheeled around on a gurney is just like, it's just like heaven. And I remember waking up post-surgery and 
I guess I was withdrawing from the opiates they gave me for the surgery. And I could feel that fucking monster in the cage of like wanting drugs. And thankfully, I, I didn't seek them out. But whoo, man, when that, when that monster starts wagging its tail, it is whether it's food or drugs or shopping or sex. Fuck, it feels so, it feels so powerful. This is from the Voice in Your Head survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Help, I'm This. And uh, what are some of the things you tell yourself about yourself? I feel like a social pariah, like the town freak, or one of those people that other locals see and shake their heads at and think, this town is going to shit. I am so crushed about where I am in life right now, dealing with autism and severe anxiety without a social safety net for the last decade. Mental illness and disability at age 30 is really hard to deal with on your own. I cannot imagine. You know, mental illness with insurance is still a motherfucker to deal with. And all that other stuff thrown in on top of it, I'm sending you, sending you some love and good vibes, man. And then finally, this is from the love survey, and this is filled out by a person who calls himself Egg. And they write, I love the gross smell of dog's ears, eyeball junk, and toes. I love napping in the afternoon and waking up as the sun is setting right on my face. I love sour candy, ring pops, Tootsie Rolls, and chocolate-covered cherries. I love the checkout guy at my grocery store who flirts with me and asks what I'm going to make with the food I'm buying. And I love that he carries my groceries to the car sometimes when there's no one else in line, even if it's one bag. I love washing my face and smothering it in fancy creams and moisturizer. I love every Friday when I remember there's a new episode of this podcast and my morning commute is full of weird, sad fucks like me. I love conversations with no words with strangers when someone is acting like a dick in public. Oh, that is a fucking great one. Just that that look of, oh boy. Uh, I love casual intimacy with strangers. I love puzzle games with endless levels. I love the first blow of my nose after a good cry. Oh my God, that's such a fantastic one. And it's always more than one tissue can handle. I love my emotional support water bottle, filled to the brim with ice and cold-ass water. I love finding song lyrics that perfectly relate to how I'm feeling. I love sticking my cold hands into the fold of my belly for warmth. I love cutting and dyeing my hair or getting a tattoo to dress up my meat sack. You would be a good good guest. Uh, I feel like the world is going to collapse in on me. Uh, oh no, I'm sorry. <laughs> I was like, that's not a, that's not a great love. Uh, I love my support group, adult children of alcoholic and dysfunctional adults, and how I now have ten different people I could call when I feel like the world is going to collapse in on me. I fucking love adult cartoons. The mix of childlike drawings and big adult feelings and concepts really does it for me. I love myself for carrying me through all these terrible memories and not deciding to end my life before I even get a chance to start it. Holy shit, Egg. 
You fucking crushed it. I love when you guys give me a survey that I'm like, oh, of course that's going to end the podcast. That's a that's a mic dropper. Thank you for to everyone who fills the surveys out, and thanks to to my guest Maylee. Wow, what a powerful uh, conversation that that was. Um, and if you're out there and you're feeling stuck, just never, never forget that you are not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.